Please turn with me in your Bible to the book of Acts, chapter 9. To remind everybody where we are and where we have been, if you think about the book of Acts and you think about the major human characters in the book, uh, Peter and Paul are the two primary human uh, characters in the book of Acts. And what you'll notice is for the first eight chapters of Acts, Peter is dominant. And then from chapters 13 to the end, Paul is dominant. You got that? So, 1 to 8, Peter. 13 to 28, Paul. And in the middle, which is chapters 9 to 12, Paul and Peter keep sharing the stage. It goes back and forth, back and forth, until finally Paul takes over. And so, we're right in the middle of this time of transition. Saul, or Paul, has just been radically converted. In today's passage, we'll read a little bit from last Sunday to remind ourselves, but then we're going to be talking about Peter's ministry and some healings that occurred uh, at the tail end of chapter 9. So, Acts chapter 9, and I'm going to put a, a map on the screen here as, as you are getting there. Uh, this map is the kind of map I can follow, ladies and gentlemen. Three words, three giant dots. I think I can sort of navigate this map. So, if you're not into geography, this is your time to shine right here. Uh, just note real quick, Jerusalem is where Peter is coming from. He's going to move out into the region around, and you'll see Lydda there, and then you'll see Joppa, which is uh, on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Just keep those dots, shouldn't be too hard, in your mind as we read today's passage. So I'm going to start at the tail end of last week, Acts 9, verse 26, to the end of Acts 9. And this, again, is the word of the Lord. And when he, Saul, had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please, come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive 
and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. If you're familiar with the book of Acts, chapters 10 and 11 is a massive turning point, and I'm excited to get to that in coming weeks. But so often, the end of 9 can sort of get lost in the shadow of 10 and 11, because 10 and 11 is the first time the gospel goes to the Gentiles, and that's a massive moment in redemptive history. But we do not want to lose this area at the end of 9 that can sometimes get into the shadow of 10, and I think there is a lot here for us to, to be edified by. I'm going to give you the sermon sort of in a sentence. I'm adapting this from another minister, and here is kind of the sermon in one sentence. Trust God to faithfully do the extraordinary and devote yourself to faithfully doing the ordinary. Trust God to faithfully do the extraordinary and devote yourself to faithfully doing the ordinary. If you've been around for a while, you may have heard part of what I'm about to quote from a few years ago, but I want to read a few excerpts from a book by Michael Horton called Ordinary, and listen to a few things early in this book that he says. In many, I'm going to read extensively here for a second, so just hang with me. In many ways, it's more fun to be part of movements than churches. We can express our own individuality, pick our favorite leaders, and be swept off our feet at conferences. We can be anonymous. Although encouraged by like-minded believers, we are not bound up with them so that we should feel compelled to bear their burdens or suffer their rebukes. Yet this movement mentality keeps us restless and makes ordinary life in uh, and submission to an actual church seem intolerably confining and terribly ordinary. One uh, young uh, woman who kind of was living uh, kind of what she would call a pretty radical life said this about herself. After living through her 20s, she said, now I'm a 30-something with two kids living a more or less ordinary life. And what I'm slowly realizing is that for me, being in the house all day with a baby and a two-year-old is a lot more scary and a lot harder than being in war-torn African village. Nothing wrong with being in a war-torn African village, but she's making an important point here about how we sometimes view what's important in life. What I need courage for is the ordinary, the daily everydayness of life. Another person said this, everyone wants a revolution, no one wants to do the dishes. Can I get an amen on that? We feel that, do we not? My life is really rich in dirty dishes and diapers these days and really short in revolutions. I go to a church full of older people who live pretty normal middle-class lives in uh, nice middle-class houses, but I have really come to appreciate this community to see their lifetimes of sturdy faithfulness to Jesus, their commitment to prayer, and the tangible, beautiful generosity that they show those around them in unnoticed, unimpressive, unremarkable, unrevolutionary ways. Then, she says, I've come to the point where I'm not sure anymore just what God counts as radical, and I suspect that for me, getting up and doing the dishes when I'm short on sleep and patience is far more costly and necessary, more of a revolution in my heart than some of the more outwardly risky ways I've lived in the past. And so, this is what I need now, the courage to face an ordinary day, an ordinary afternoon with a colicky baby where I'm probably going to snap at my two-year-old and get annoyed with my noisy neighbor without despair the bravery it takes to believe that a small life is still a meaningful life, and the grace to know that even when I've done nothing that is seemingly powerful or bold or even interesting, that the Lord notices me and is fond of me, and that that is enough. And the last part, the kind of giving my life away that counts starts with how I get up on a gray Tuesday morning. It may never sell books. It may not be remembered by the world, but it's what makes a life. 
And who knows, maybe at the end of days, a hurried prayer for an enemy, a passing kindness to a neighbor, or budget planning on a boring Thursday will be the revolution stories of God making all things new. So, the idea there being, sometimes we don't think of God's ordinary calling on so many of our lives as being very significant in the long run. And yet, it is absolutely where faithfulness to God normally appears. And so, let me say again the, the theme of the sermon, trust God to faithfully do the extraordinary and devote yourself to faithfully doing the ordinary. And I thought I'd give a, I'm just going to give it to me a more of a practical sermon today. I'm going to give a lot of different examples and things to think about uh, on practical application. Just to kind of get us thinking here, if you've been here, I'm going to review a few people we've already seen in Acts. Just a couple quick reminders. Earlier in this chapter, the man who brought Saul of Tarsus, the great Apostle Paul, really to Christ after he met Christ, right? He, he led him to Christ. The scales fell off his eyes. Ananias baptized Paul the Apostle, soon to be Paul the Apostle, and Ananias is virtually unheard of out of this chapter. Beyond Acts 9, he's only mentioned one other time when Paul is telling his testimony in Acts 22. And all we know is he was a devout man who loved God, obeyed His law, and served Him faithfully. That's all we know. And he was used as the human instrument to bring the greatest Christian to faith that we've ever known. Uh, I, I know we've told the story of Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon's conversion many times, but I want to just mention one aspect that, that, that needs to be remembered. We still to this day do not know who the fill-in preacher was to the dozen or 15 people on a snowy day, uh, who this fill-in preacher was. Spurgeon says, I think he was a tailor, something along those lines. He worked a kind of humble job. The pastor must have been snowed in. This man gets up not knowing he has to preach until probably 10 minutes before the service because there's no phone calling. Then he gets up there at 1850, and this guy doesn't know much about Scripture. He opens to a verse in Isaiah about look to the Lord and be saved, and he just talks about it for about 15 minutes to about a dozen or 15 people. And I have to tell you, I can imagine that man went home that night quite discouraged about that day. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not properly trained. I, don't, I didn't know what I, I just had a 15-minute sermon. I barely knew what to say. I don't know why. There was 15 people there. This is a huge disappointment. He goes home. Little did he know that he was an Ananias leading an apostle Paul to Christ. Spurgeon then goes on to affect the world in a massive way. His, one of the most voluminous writers in the English language of the Christian faith in all of history. So, Ananias helps lead Paul to Christ who knows the lives that we touch and the other impacts that we might have on those around us. Number two, you may remember Barnabas just mentioned here in verse 27. But Barnabas took Paul and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Barnabas was nicknamed, remember, the son of encouragement. Now, what you may already know, you may not know, the Greek word for encouragement is the, it's the, it's the word, okay, you remember the word for the Holy Spirit, the, 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 the paraclete, you may have heard that word before, it's the same word used for him, son of uh, paraclesis, the son of, the son of encouragement. That same word is used of the Holy Spirit, I will send the encourager, right, the, the, the one to come alongside, the comforter, and even here in verse 21, look at the, I mean 31, look at the last part of verse 31, they were walking in the fear of the Lord and in the Comfort, exact same word for son of encouragement, the paraclesis, the, the, the comfort of the Holy Spirit. So, listen, we get to be, by the Holy Spirit's grace, we can be great encouragers to saints around us. This means, you know, Barnabas said, Barnabas was not um, being naive. 
He knew Saul was a murderer previously, that he hated Christianity, but he knew by meeting with him that his conversion had been real. And so Barnabas is the one who puts his neck out there and says, I'm bringing Saul in because I want you guys to know that after spending time with him, I really believe the Spirit has done a work. And who knows if Paul would have even been able at that time to meet the apostles initially if it wasn't for Barnabas's encouragement. And so that's just one of the great things about having other believers in our lives. Can we be an encouragement to others? Now, listen, the word encouragement almost sounds, you know, a cliche, trite, you know, what does that even mean? You, you know what encouragement means? It means coming alongside someone, not always agreeing with them, pushing them towards Jesus. I mean, I hope you use this as a weapon for good. This can be used as a weapon for evil in this world. This can also be used as a weapon for good. Just think about the internet. Just think about all that we have access to. Think about how evil is lurking and how great good is also right around the corner. Do you think of your phone as a weapon for the kingdom of God? Um, Jerry Edgar's not here, so I can embarrass him. If you're watching online, Jerry, plug your ears for like 30 seconds. So, Jerry is a guy who uses his phone uh, as a weapon for the kingdom. And what I mean is, Jerry is now, when I say always on his phone, don't misunderstand. <laughs> He's not like, you know, just sitting there playing a game. Jerry is on his phone a lot during the day. And what he does is he is, and you know because you get calls from him and you get text messages from him, he's always checking on other people. He is just, he is just preoccupied with, with doing good. Now listen, again, not to embarrass the man. He's been paralyzed for nearly 40 years, okay? A lot of limitations that come with that. And yet he has become a son of encouragement like no one I've ever known. He is always asking, how are you? What are you up to? Checking, asking, encouraging, exhorting. And he does it all the time through text messages and phone calls. I talk to Jerry all the time during the week. He's always checking and working through things and, and, and talking about issues that need to be dealt with. And so, do you use your phone to waste time? Like Greg was saying, with entertainment, is it just constant scrolling? Are you a slave to Instagram and social media and Facebook and Twitter? Are you just a slave to it? Is all your free time eaten up by those things? Or... By God's grace, are you getting power over that, resisting temptation to waste time or even worse, and using that as an instrument of good to encourage, to be a Barnabas to those around us, exhorting one another and encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Number three, if you look back at chapter eight, at the very end of chapter eight, Philip, I want to mention. So we talked a couple weeks ago about Philip. Remember, he helped the church begin in Samaria. And then remember the Ethiopian eunuch heading back to Africa? He led him to the Lord. The part that we can miss of his story is the last verse. Verse 40, but Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to uh, Caesarea. So thinking back to that map just now, he went up the whole coast of that map all the way to the top of the screen. And what was he doing? Preaching the gospel in every city. You know what that means? Some people think it is very possible that the churches that we're hearing about today in Lydda and Joppa may have been started by Philip. By Philip. We don't know that for sure, but he was certainly preaching the gospel in those cities just months ago. And so perhaps some churches were started by Philip in those areas. You say, okay, well, I'm probably not going to go on a tour and start 17 churches anytime soon. I understand, okay? I'm not planning on doing that myself. I understand. So how does that relate to me? Philip did not begin his Christian life going up the Mediterranean coast, planting churches everywhere he turned. Do you remember where Philip shows up in the story? 
We need someone to help with the Greek-speaking widows who are being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Okay, let's tell the multiple thousands of Christians to find people with a good reputation, seven men of good repute who we can trust with this task to care for these widows who are being neglected. And the second man on the list is Philip, full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom. That's what we're told. He had a good reputation. Philip was not looking for fame and fortune. He was not looking for a page in the New Testament as if he could even conceptualize it. That's where he would one day be. That's not what he was about. What was he? He was a genuine Christian in the church in Jerusalem. Hadn't been a Christian too long, right? The church was just born at Pentecost. And he became a devout follower of Jesus. And he was known to be trusted by many people. And they said, okay, if we need someone dealing with money and dealing with neglected people in the church, Philip is your guy. He's on the top seven out of 5,000. Okay, so Philip did not begin with some kind of self-aggrandizing plan. Philip was just serving his local church, and he was identified as a faithful man. He was then put in charge of the widows, and before long, the Spirit has him in Samaria. I mean, imagine that being the human instrument of that breakthrough. And then the Ethiopian eunuch, and now perhaps starting some other churches on the Mediterranean coast. So, let, let us be faithful where God has us. But now, focusing more on today's passage specifically, I want to look at three individuals, Peter, Aeneas, and Tabitha. Just go ahead and get the junior high kind of middle school feel out of them. I understand. By the way, I have a little bit of junior high still middle school kind of inside of me too. So, her name was Dorcas. You can kind of get the laugh out. Okay, it's understandable. I get it. Uh, I'm going to be calling her Tabitha. That's her Aramaic name, her Greek name, Dorcas, and both words mean gazelle. Okay, it's actually a beautiful name. And so, uh, Tabitha as well, we will be focusing on during today's message. So, look with me here at verse 31 of Acts 9. So, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord. And in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Now, just real quick, uh, fear of the Lord, comfort of the Holy Spirit, those are not opposites. We can have a reverential fear and trembling of God's goodness and holiness and His reality. I mean, you, you're, if you're a believer, God is at work in you. There should be fear and trembling. The God of the universe is, is, is at work in my life. That's fear and trembling, awe and reverence, and the greatest comfort you can ever know at the same time. And the church is just being built up, and it is multiplying. It is multiplying. Verse 32, now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now, I'm just going to say a brief word about Peter. He'll come back uh, still more in Acts before we leave him. Just a quick word about Peter. Look at 32 again. He went here and there among them. He came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. Again, we see him leaving Jerusalem, and what is he doing? He's just going about doing good. Similar to Barnabas, similar to Philip. He's just going around, and he is seeking to be a blessing to the believers he can find, and he goes here and there blessing the churches, building them up in the truth and in the Lord. But let's really focus in here on these two stories of healing. Aeneas, eight years paralyzed, 
Um, this means he was not born this way. Uh, people speculate, you know, what could have happened. He, he may have had an accident, uh, physical, he may have fallen, he may have had some kind of accident that left him paralyzed, he may have had a stroke, something along those lines, we don't know, but he was left paralyzed later in life, and for eight years he had been bedridden. Every indication would seem to be that he's a believer, it doesn't say it explicitly, but he's, Peter's with the believers and he's there, so it sounds like he was a believer present, that would make sense, and Peter raises him from the dead. I just want to make a couple comments about healings again. Do you remember I said a few weeks ago, the book of Acts, one of the challenges of interpreting the book is the difference between descriptive and prescriptive passages. Do you remember this? Descriptive is just describing what was happening. We may not do likewise, right? You know, it's just that's what was happening. And then prescriptive is like a doctor prescribing you medicine. You must do this. This is something we must do. And so the challenge of Acts is saying, what do we do likewise and what do we just see was a unique moment in the early church. And certainly the healing ministries of, the, of Jesus and the apostles are not something that we're supposed to see like that today. I don't deny that God can heal, that miracles are still possible, but I do not at all think that we should, and we, we, the, the gifts of healing as we see here are not something that we should expect today in the church like they were at the time. And so what you're, what you're seeing here is Jesus and the apostles doing great miracles. Now, I had to look this up to make sure I was correct, and I don't think I was correct. So I was trying to remember how many people were raised from the dead in the Bible. And uh, let, me, let me give one big exception. We'll take Jesus' resurrection. And remember, Matthew tells us a number of people were raised at the time Christ was raised in Matthew 27. We don't know how many. We'll just put that to the side. Just leave that one out for a second. With that exception, at the time of Christ's resurrection, we don't know how many. Outside of that, we only know of eight in the whole Bible. Three in the Old Testament, five in the New Testament. This is not something that happens on every page of the Bible, in case you kind of get that impression. In the Old Testament, we read one of them at the beginning of the service. Elijah uh, raised the widow of Zarephath's son. Elisha raised the Shunammite woman's son. And one of the, the strangest story, a guy's getting buried. Some people come that are going to, you know, attack them. They panic, they drop the body into the grave, and Elisha's body is already there because he's been dead. The body touches Elisha's body, what happens? The guy comes back. Wow, I think there's a, we could talk about that another day. But th those are the three Old Testament examples. In the New Testament, you have Jesus, only three. So he raises Jairus' daughter, he raises the widow of Nain's son on the way to be buried, and he raises Lazarus in John 11. Peter here raises Tabitha. The only time we ever hear of Peter raising the dead is, is Tabitha here. And then Paul raises Eutychus, the guy who fell out of the window. It comforts all people who have to do public speaking. Even the apostle Paul put a guy to sleep and he fell out of a third story window and Paul took him up dead and raised him to life. If I put you to sleep, I can't raise you to life. So I just be careful where you sit today. Don't sit on the edge of the balcony or something. That would be, a, that'd be scary. So uh, no guarantees of raising you after that. So th that's it. Th that's what you get. So this is an exceptionally rare moment. This may be the only time Peter ever did this level of uh, miracle. So a couple quick points about miracles in the Bible. The story I read at the beginning with Elijah, do you remember? You don't, don't turn back there, but at the end of that story, the last verse the, the widow sees her son raised, and she says, now I know that you are a man of God and that the Word of God in your mouth is truth. Miracles were meant to validate the prophet. Moses at the burning bush, how will they know that you're sending me? I'm a shepherd from the desert. No one cares who I am. Well, how about this? Put your hand in your cloak, bring it out. It's got leprosy. Put it back, it's clean. How about this? Throw your stick on the ground. It's going to turn to a snake, a real snake. It's going to slither around, grab it by the tail, it becomes a, a staff again. Let's do 10 plagues. 
I will prove that you are my messenger and that I am the one true God. Signs and wonders are known around Moses' ministry and the 40 years in the wilderness. They then crop up again around Elijah and Elisha, and they crop up again with Jesus and the apostles, and there aren't that many miraculous things going on outside of those three sections. There are still miracles here and there, but for the, for the most part, those are the areas where they occur. So, um, they are meant to validate. In 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul says, I performed the signs of an apostle among you with signs and wonders. I'm a real apostle. I did signs and wonders. So, number one, they're meant to validate in major moments of redemptive history, the God's messengers. Number two, miracles are signs of new creation. See, Jesus isn't actually doing something, how do I say this, out of the ordinary when He heals someone. What's out of the ordinary is sin and the fall, death and disease. That's out of the original design. Do you see what I mean? God created the world not to have death, disease, and sin. What's actually corrupted is death, disease, and sin. So when Jesus brings healing, He's actually restoring the original order. Um, He's bringing back what should be, and sin and death is not what should be. So it's a sign of what He can and will do at the end when He restores creation. Also, it's, it's a picture of what He can do here and now. One commentator pointed to this after uh, Aeneas being raised from unable to walk. Think about this parallel. Don't turn there, but Hebrews 12, therefore, spiritually speaking, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather healed. There's a spiritual strengthening and healing that these miracles point to. If God can raise the dead, and get a paralyzed man to walk, He can spiritually give you strength to make it through this week. He can. He can strengthen your weak spiritual knees. He can put strength into your soul, and He can allow you to make it through this week with a Christ-like attitude. Let me talk um, a little bit here about Tabitha. Let's read her story now. Verse 36. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. Pause there. You have to wonder, what were they expecting? She has already died. And it's not like Peter's doing raisings of the dead all the time, but I bet they had heard about Aeneas, and they thought maybe, wonder of wonders, she could actually, he could actually come and do something like Elijah or Elisha did and raise the dead. Verse 39, so Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. Pause there. Interesting fact, when Elijah and Elisha raised those two younger Uh, individuals, both of those stories uh, take place in an upper room. I don't think that's an accident. We're specifically told upper room for both stories. So, I think Luke is seeing parallels and trying to point us back to, to remind us of those stories. All the widows, middle of 39, all the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, Arise. So, pause there. Do you remember Mark chapter 5? Jesus goes into the home, Jairus' daughter, and Jesus does the same thing. He takes the morning 
people and puts them out of the room, right? Jesus closes the door, comes in, and Jesus raises this girl. But do you remember the girl's name was Talitha? Oh, no, no, excuse me. Talitha means little girl. He said, little girl, arise. And, and it, it gives you the Aramaic that Jesus spoke in the verse. Talitha kumi. You remember that interesting phrase? Talitha kumi, little girl, arise. Well, Peter is speaking uh, Aramaic almost certainly right here. So, you know what Peter says? He doesn't say Talitha kumi. He says Tabitha kumi. I mean, almost a certain uh, echo back to what Jesus did. He's doing the same thing Jesus did. Sends the mourners out of the room, closes the doors, and says one letter difference of what Jesus says. Instead of Talitha kumi, little girl, arise, Tabitha kumi, uh, Tabitha, arise. Middle of verse 40. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed at Joppa many days with one Simon, a tanner. You know, Jesus famously said, the last will be first, and the first shall be last. This woman here, on the surface, does not look extraordinary. And yet, her character is described here, and if, imagine God in His Word was going to describe your life at your funeral in one sentence. Imagine God, who knows all, is going to accurately describe your life in one sentence. Can you ever get anything better than the one sentence the Lord used to describe Tabitha? Verse 36, first she's a disciple. And then it says, she was full of good works and acts of charity. Can you imagine the Lord looking at your life and describing your life that way? This was a genuine person. Now, at the risk of distraction here, I don't want to go into detail. I do risk this being a distraction, but I do just think this could be appropriate to mention. Recently, a very well-known evangelical leader, a scandal has come out. And this person has been seen to be seen living a very obvious, horrible double life, sexually immoral, in, in just horrific ways. I met this individual. Scott and I met this person more than once in, in, the, in the past, and just having no idea about all this. Now, here's what I mean. When, when Jesus says, the last will be first, and the first shall be last, here's what I think that means. Some people that get elevated in the evangelical mind as being great people, when standing before the eyes of God on the last day, will be found to be very poor and absolutely cast out of God's presence. Many who were thought to be great will be entirely left out of the kingdom, and others like this woman here who would not perhaps make it into a history book. She is recorded in God's Word, and the Lord Himself gives the highest words of praise, calling her a saint, a disciple, full of good works and acts of charity. The Lord esteems her. So, we need to reevaluate how we assess greatness in the evangelical world today. We need to assess it not by external things that can be very easily manipulated or fraudulent or deceptive. We need to measure them by the standards of integrity and truth. I mean, not to get carried away here, I can name numerous pastors whose books I bought and who I listened to who in the last 10 years have fallen in horrible ways from the faith, uh, or at least fallen in their ministry and have been kind of shipwrecked in many ways. I could just name one after another. One ends in suicide. I still have his book on my shelf, uh, you know, on and on. And so, you, you sit there and you look at these extremely sad and tragic stories, and here's what I think one thing we can learn from this heart-wrenching reality is 
Let us be true to the Lord starting from within. Let us calibrate our own integrity. Let us stand before God exposed by His Word and make sure that our heart and our light is truly repentant, that we really confess our sin and not hide it. You know, what does David say? When I hid my sin, my bones wasted away. I was miserable through my groaning all the day. My, my tongue was sticking to my roof like a pot shirt. I, I was agonizing in my sin. Then I confessed my sin to the Lord. I, I confessed it to the Lord, and the Lord cleansed me. He purified me. How, he says, blessed is the one against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whom spirit there is no deceit. Blessed is that man. L- let us be people who are true people of integrity from the inside out. Hold your spot here and turn to the right to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Now, thinking of this woman's good works and thinking about widows in general, because she was around widows, perhaps caring for widows in in particular was her ministry. Uh, I want to read a few things here. Now, I'm just going to tell you, in the world we live in, a few things in this passage are touchy to people today, okay? And I want to be aware of that, but I also don't want to back down from what Scripture says here. Let me add another quick footnote here. Uh, I mentioned a few weeks ago that singleness is a legitimate calling, and I'm not disparaging God's legitimate call of singleness, which is typically a smaller number percentage-wise of believers, both men and women, but the Apostle Paul and Jesus Himself lived a single life to the full glory of God. So, I'm not disparaging that, but I am speaking here not so much of singleness in this particular passage because he's dealing with, with marriage in context. Look with me at 1 Timothy 5. I don't have time to explain everything in this passage. It's a little bit confusing in a few spots, but look at verse 9. He's talking about putting widows on, uh, on a roll for the church where they would take care of their physical needs. 1 Timothy 5, verse 9, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age. Now, here he describes a normal, godly woman's life with several issues. I think most women should, should make note of these passages because this is very, uh, very clear for the majority of women in the church. Number one, having been the wife of one husband… So, if you are married, you are a woman who is faithful to your husband, uh, not a wandering eyes or wandering heart. You are true to your husband. And of course, you could say the same in reverse. An elder should be a a one-woman man, right? The the same in reverse. So, faithful to your spouse, but a woman who is faithful to her husband, that's a godly woman. Number two, verse 10, having a reputation for good works, just like Tabitha. Number three, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. Look at verse 14. So, I would have the younger widows, four things. Number one, marry. Number two, bear children. Number three, manage their households. And number four, give the adversary no occasion for slander. Now, I already mentioned there are exceptions to this, but generally speaking, man, this is, how is this so controversial today? This is like so basic, and I feel nervous saying this. This is crazy. Okay, I'm just going to say it. Here we go. You ready? Most Christian women, most, most Christian women should grow up, and their goal and aim should be marriage and child rearing. Marriage and motherhood should be a normal aim for most Christian women from a young age. This should, this should be a goal in life. Career is not wrong. It is not wrong for a woman to have a career. Obviously not. But what has the priority? That's the question. Today, I would just say, in a 
feministic culture, career has priority over the rearing of children, generally speaking, and I don't think that's even controversial. I think that's just true. And so, I, I want us to recalibrate here that normally speaking, here's what Paul says, a godly woman, in most cases, the wife of one husband, a reputation for good works, brought up children, shown hospitality, washed the feet of the saints, which means, washed the feet of the saints means done kind of just acts of service, much like Tabitha, uh, cared for the afflicted, devoted herself to good works. And then he boils it down in verse 14, I would have the younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households to give the adversary no occasion for slander. Now, I always have to say what I'm not saying. Proverbs 31 is very clear. The woman uh, in Proverbs 31, which is a tremendous passage on womanhood, she does work with her hands. She makes a profit. She's like a merchant ship. She sees a field and buys it. She makes a profit. Her, you know, her candle does not go out by night. She, she is a hardworking woman. She's industrious. She works. She makes profit. She can, she's in real estate, apparently. She's buying fields. She's planting stuff. Nothing wrong with that. That's godly womanhood. But if you read the Proverbs 31 woman, I, I challenge you to highlight, like I did, every time it mentions her household. She makes garments for her children in her household, in her household, in her household. She works hard, and on and on. It is godly womanhood that focuses on these incredibly important acts of nurturing and rearing children. I'll just say, every single one of us had a mother, right? Mothers shape the culture because the children who grow up into the adults were all raised by mothers and fathers. Yes, fathers are indispensable, but mothers in a particular way are so vital to how people grow up and how they are shaped and how they are formed. And so, uh, our church is, and the Bible is, uh, wanting to make a priority on those things. And even though the world may at times despise that role or belittle that role and, and treat it like it's less than and it's not as important and throw that off of you and that's a burden and that's not right and that's this and that, I want to say that is the way God has wired us in most cases. That is what we are called to, and it is gloriously good for the home and for the society. Can I get an amen on this? I think people are scared to say an amen on that. I, I, I really do believe that. that least one other, sorry, one other thing. When we went through Exodus, this moved me deeply. Do you remember this? As the great, greatest redemptive event in the Old Testament begins, you remember how it starts? This is how it starts. Ready? A mother caring for her son Moses under threat of death to herself and her son. She cares for Moses. Moses' sister watching Moses, right, as he's placed in the basket. Pharaoh's daughter, although not a believer, having compassion for this child, right? And then uh, Shifra and Pua, the two... Uh, help me, midwives of the, of, of the Hebrews who refused to kill these children under, under threat of death and under Pharaoh's command. So, the greatest redemptive event in the Old Testament got its start by five women caring for children. You tell me that that's not significant. The, the world can make fun of that all day long. We would not have the exodus if it wasn't for those five women caring for children in great need and devoting themselves to it. Please do not buy the lies today that say that that is a less than job, that that is a less than thing to devote your life to. It is glorious, it is wonderful, and you have the privilege, mothers, to shape human lives that will live forever 
and the, the privilege to lead them into a knowledge of Christ, a knowledge of Scripture, and ultimately into the arms of our Savior is not something to mock or belittle. It is something to treat with great respect and dignity. All right, let's turn back to Acts chapter 9. I want to wrap up with this closing uh, thought here. So, trust God to faithfully do the extraordinary and devote yourself to faithfully doing the ordinary. What, what do I mean? I don't mean that we're expecting great miracles today like this. That's not what I mean. What I mean is the miracles in this chapter that still happen are like the miracles of regeneration or new birth and sanctification, growth in godliness. Those are miracles that all of us get to participate in, both for ourselves and for other people around us. In this passage, uh, the believers are referred to by two important names. We are twice, believers are twice called saints, verse 32 and 41, and called disciples in verse 36. So, this is what I want to close with. All of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus, we are those two things. If you are a saint, you're a disciple. If you're not a disciple, you are not yet a saint. A saint means this, although I in myself am guilty of serious sin before God. If I were to stand before God based on my own life, that is the most terrifying experience. If, if you have never felt the weight, I mean emotionally in your affections, if you've never felt the weight of your personal sin, ask the Lord to open your eyes. That you're, that you, if you just think, I'm just a good person, ask the Lord to show you where you stand before Him without Christ's righteousness. It is a terrifying thing to think about. Then realize this, we went from being outside Christ by His grace to being brought into Christ and being called a saint, which is just a fancy way of saying a holy one. So, no matter how unholy your life was before you knew Jesus, and no matter what mistakes you've even made since you've become a Christian, sins, I mean, if you're in Christ, you are holy in the Beloved. You are a righteous one in Christ, clothed with the righteousness of another, the faultless righteousness of Christ, and you are now called to live out practically what you already are positionally. You are positionally a saint, now be a saint in practice, be holy in practice, be a disciple in practice, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength in practice, and when you fail, and you will inevitably fail, I do too. When you let your anger get the best of you, when you lose your temper, we repent, we confess, we get on our knees, we, we speak to the Lord, and we ask for renewed strength, and we get back up, and we continue on the pilgrimage of faith. We continue walking on the pathway of obedience. And so, we've seen today Ananias, Barnabas, Philip, Peter, Aeneas, and Tabitha, all in different ways being used by the Lord for the great good of His church, the building up of His body throughout this whole region, and many of the things that were done, not all, but many, were simple acts of ordinary faithfulness as we entrust the Lord Himself to do those miraculous things of the new birth and a changed life. So, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, our culture has tremendous power over our thinking, more than we probably realize, certainly more. If some of the things we've even read today are particularly bothersome or offensive to some, within the hearing of my voice, 
Lord, I, I pray that you would show us our blind spots, help us to believe that what you command in your word is what is truly best for us. And God, humble us to live the life that you've called us to. Help us not aspire to worldly greatness in an unholy way. Help us instead to live a life of ordinary, daily faithfulness, resisting temptation through the week of all stripes and colors and forms. Lord, help us to be true believers, not with two lives, living outwardly one way and yet inwardly being someone entirely different. Help us to confess if we are locked into secret sin. Help us to renounce it, to confess it to a believer we trust, to get out of it. If there's other sins in our life that have been on our mind, Lord, Lord give us the grace to hate those sins, to, dis, to be disgusted by them, and to turn to the purity and the joy of holiness, a life consistent with being a holy one in Christ. And God, please encourage us when we fail. Come alongside us. Give us the grace to be obedient to Your Word and build up Your church continually so that we could walk in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of Your Holy Spirit. I'm going to be reading from 1 Thessalonians 4. It begins with a warning and ends with an encouragement. Please hear these words. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress or wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us to impurity, but to holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Lord, I pray that you would give us hearts that desire truly not to put on a show, not to impress anybody with our spirituality, not to appear any way at all, but God, help us to be truly Christian, truly believers, from our heart out to our actions, to our life. Lord, help us to be genuine and help us to devote our lives in so many ways to ordinary faithfulness. And we pray, Lord, that the cumulative effect of many lives doing many ordinary acts of service and kindness like Tabitha and others 
Lord, we pray the cumulative effect would be that you would use all of our seemingly forgettable deeds for extraordinary purposes and extraordinary ends in your kingdom. I want to pray finally, Lord, for all these little children that have been born in the time of our church. I think it's around 20 now. God, we love these kids. We love them. Lord, we pray for them. We pray that you would convict them of sin at an early age, that you would show them the truth of the gospel and that you would draw them savingly to yourself. I pray that our church could produce an army of believers for the next generation who would live for you, honor you, and themselves live lives of great faithfulness in the ordinary things of life. So Lord, please be at work. Do more than we ask or imagine through our church and in this city and beyond. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. You are dismissed.